Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today uh, Dr. Rebecca Scharbach wallenberg to tell us all about her book just out from Princeton University Press titled The Closed Book, How the Rabbis Taught the Jews Not to Read the Bible, which is fascinating. This book helps us understand the common phrase, right? The people of the book. That's what Jews are, right? That's what the rabbinical tradition is. Except the story is actually a lot more complicated than that, and honestly, a lot more interesting than that. Um, Rebecca, in her book, and she's going to do a much better job explaining it than I will, but essentially uh, helps us understand how rabbis viewed the biblical text um, in the development of the early rabbinical tradition. And it's not exactly a, yay, this is great, we should do exactly you know, read the book, that's the best thing. They had much more complicated feelings about the biblical text and what role it should have in various aspects of Jewish life. Um, So Rebecca, thank you so much for being on the podcast to tell us all about this. Thanks for having me. Before we dive into all of the wonderful things of your book, would you mind introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this? Sure. So I teach biblical reception history at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. I'm currently an assistant professor at the university's Frankel Center for Jewish Studies, um, but I just submitted my tenure file, so I might have a title change soon. Wish me luck. Uh, the closed book was actually a bit of a happy accident. So many years ago, I set out to write a dissertation about how and why the rabbis of the high Middle Ages began to read the Hebrew Bible as, I don't know, what you might call God's monograph. That is, I was curious about how this, this odd phenomenon we see where around the turn of the first millennium, around the year 1000, medieval rabbis across the globe, right, from Paris to Baghdad, suddenly begin to treat the Bible as a carefully curated informational text with a single author, a consistent message, right, a harmonious, perfect book. So in the last two or three years, this has become actually quite a popular research question. But 10 years ago, that was not the case. Every time I submitted an application for a fellowship, at least one reader would object. What do you mean the medieval rabbis began to read the Bible as a perfect book? Um, they would say, like, the rabbis have always approached the Hebrew Bible as a perfect monograph. Um, what does this research question even mean? So at first, I added a preliminary chapter showing that late antique rabbis did not, in fact, read the Bible as a book, at least not in any sense that we would understand that term. Then I added a chapter showing that rabbis weren't particularly convinced the Bible was a perfect book, or really that any written revelation could be a perfect blueprint for religious life. Next, every time I I submitted a chapter, I then submitted a fellowship application and I would get the same questions back. 
So then I added a chapter about how early rabbinic practitioners engaged with the Bible without actually reading it and so on. And by the time I was done addressing all of the objections to the research question, I was 400 pages into a dissertation. So in the end, I never actually got to write about the Middle Ages at all. <laughs> what a fascinating way to kind of accidentally end up with a book almost as a rebuttal. Right? Wow, that's fascinating. Okay, so one of the things I want to ask you about um, maybe comes from the same, you know, was because of that process? I don't know. Um, you talk early in the book, and I really appreciate that you actually talk about this in the book, um, because it is such a tricky sort of methodological question, I suppose, but one that we often don't actually give attention to. Um, so can you tell us about how you approached the bibliography of your book and why you did that? Right. So in the end, the closed book doesn't have a bibliography at all. I had to get permission from the press, actually, to admit that section of the manuscript. Um, a colleague recently suggested that that was a pretty risky move for someone who was, as I just mentioned, about to go up for tenure. The Hikipan explained to me, you know, the senior scholars who write your tenure evaluation letters will want to be able to see that you cited them and their students. And in fact, I've actually received more than one email from a senior scholar asking me to send them a digital copy of the book because they want to do bibliographic searches in the footnotes, right? Like they want to check these things. So my friend wasn't wrong. But that's actually exactly why I wanted to try to avoid traditional bibliographic practices. Um, Anthony Grafton once pointed out, like a long time ago at this point, that in certain fields, footnotes don't function anymore, primarily as a way of documenting the genealogy of an idea. Instead, footnotes are used basically to demonstrate that you have read the right people and that you can fit yourself into the right scholarly networks. That might sound ideologically neutral, neutral, maybe even positive to some people. But in fields where the existing networks are really imbalanced in terms of race or gender or class and so forth, this practice of constantly reinscribing certain prominent scholarly genealogies in every single piece of writing the field produces actually can be more harmful than helpful. So biblical studies, for example, has a pretty wild gender imbalance, among many other imbalances. Um, the Society of Biblical Literature's most recent member survey, for example, confirmed that 75% of the membership continues to be men, 20 years after the turn of the millennium. A very prominent biblical studies journal recently published not one, but two full issues in which every single article was written by a man. So in this context, I had to ask myself, what does it mean for me to promote my work by attaching myself to this very select group of scholarly networks that are already so hegemonic within the field? In the end, I felt compelled to try something a little different. I admitted the bibliography so that I wouldn't be compelled to compile yet another really imbalanced list of the existing literature on the topic. And my footnotes don't follow the convention in the field of rabbinics or biblical studies of citing everyone who has ever written on a given issue since 1850. The reason I did that is because we don't currently have the technical apparatus in place to do that work comprehensively um, or really equitably in any way. So you always, always end up just citing the same prominent players over and over again. Instead, I decided I was only going to cite the scholarly work that directly inspired certain ideas within the book. Because when I was going through, I noticed that my own work was often inspired by research done outside 
um, these like more well-worn paths within the field. So scholarship produced, for example, by international scholars, women and non-binary researchers who have tended within these fields to work in more emerging areas, right? Contingent faculty, folks working at less prestigious institutions. And the result is that my footnotes don't necessarily accrue a ton of prestige to the book within the established scholarly networks, but I hope that they do chart some alternate paths of scholarly exploration within this area of research and paths that maybe one or two other researchers will also follow up on so that the field becomes that much more diverse in terms of the intellectual possibilities that we are willing and able to consider. Mm. That makes sense. It does. No, thank you for explaining that. Um, With that sort of foundation of some of the, you know, how you got into writing this, how you accumulated the chapters um, in response to critique and sort of how you've really thought about quite clearly, you know, every detail of this. uh, I'd love to therefore dive into the arguments of the book itself. Um, And first off, can you help us understand why early rabbis thought that the text of the Hebrew Bible was, quote, unstable and historically contingent? And how did this belief shape their engagement with the text? So the answer is no. No, I'm just kidding. It's just that this is a particularly hard question to answer because it's not actually, it's not entirely clear how literally the authors of classical rabbinic literature took the historical stories that they told. So certainly late antique rabbis told many, many stories about the biblical text being lost or corrupted only to be saved from you know, permanent error or oblivion um, by some special sage sent by God. So in these stories, for example, the written Torah is periodically rescued from destruction by Ezra the scribe in the late biblical period, the famous Rabbi Hillel, and a whole series of other biblical characters and rabbinic sages. Right? The Bible is always just on the verge of being lost. So the question is whether the rabbinic authors of these stories actually intended us to believe that these events happened, right? Are these historical stories? Well, in favor of historical reading, you could point out that these narratives are often accompanied by some surprisingly gritty, um, like epigraphic detail, I guess you'd call it. Rabbinic sources, for instance, debate whether the Torah, the five books of Moses, were originally written in what they call katab libona, brick writing or whether it only came to be transcribed in that script during the first temple period, right? Is this an original? Is this a corruption? What's going on here? And if my first question was like, what the heck is Katavli Bona? What is this brick writing? And then you realize the rabbis had physical evidence around them that ancient Hebrew ostraca and these epigraphic inscriptions were recorded in forms of writing, like Hebrew writing, ancient writing, biblical writing, that were very different from their own late antique Torah scrolls. And they were trying to figure out how this historical evidence fit into their own pretty imaginative narratives about how the biblical texts have been corrupted and reconstructed throughout history. But on the other hand, you might interpret these stories about like a biblical game of telephone. Remember that, that story when your kids, you whisper in one child's ear a certain word, and then they try to hear the word and they whisper what they think they heard to the next child's ear, right? So these stories about a biblical game of telephone where things are always getting like almost lost or tripped up might be sort of a form of narrative theorizing. So the rabbinic authorities definitely didn't write philosophical treatises. Like they weren't the Greeks. They didn't walk a reader through their theoretical premises in a systematic outline form. Half the time they didn't even say what they really meant, right? Instead, they told these exemplar stories that conveyed their theoretical points 
through one paradigmatic example, an example that might never have occurred. So in this case, the stories about biblical texts that were lost or corrupted wouldn't be meant as a literal historical account. Instead, these would be stories about what could theoretically happen, what can theoretically happen to written texts. So they become this form of mythology about their vulnerability and unreliable, like how unreliable written texts can be in a more general way. In favor of this sort of more metaphorical approach, we have to think about the fact that a significant portion of these stories actually focus on how Moses himself lost the first set of tablets that comes down from Mount Sinai in the biblical story. Right? Moses comes down the mountain, he's carrying these two beautiful tablets. They're amazing. God just wrote them with his own hand. He sees the people of Israel cavorting and like dancing around the idol of the golden calf. He gets mad. They're destroyed. He goes back up the mountain and God gives him a second set of tablets, but it sounds kind of begrudging and you're not sure how good the second tablets are. So the rabbis made a lot of that story. And by bringing Moses into this pattern, the rabbis seem to be saying this isn't really a historical problem. The Torah was always already, sort of from its inception, vulnerable to corruption and loss from the very first moments of what I, I would call primordial history, right? Like this already begins back in the Bible, because that's just how sacred texts work, they seem to be saying. Scripts change, manuscripts are lost, rats eat the corners. So for many late antique rabbis, written text is just not a reliable means of transmitting important traditions. And yet they have this Bible. So it becomes a real question how you deal with that. Very much so. Um, and obviously there's a lot of ways that they could deal with it and sort of try and think it through. Um, but I was interested in one of the things you said about sort of how they were approaching, hang on, how do we deal with this? Um, that one of the things that might be in their mind is a cynical incentive for it, right? That there might be some cynical reasons for, quote, circumscribing the revelatory authority of the written text. Um, you've talked us through sort of some of the concerns they had. What, what were maybe some of these other incentives? Right. So when I first began this project, I would tell people, you know, the rabbis weren't that enthusiastic about the you know, biblical text as such. And they would look at me kind of slyly and say, of course not. The rabbis didn't like the written Torah. They just invented the oral Torah, right? That independent rabbinic oral tradition about how communal life should be structured so that it can conform to the rabbinic revelation, right? Um, so like they had their own version of what happened at Mount Sinai. And so people would say, naturally, they're going to downplay the competition, right? To increase the prestige of their own project. No one wants their own teachings to be constrained or overshadowed by some ancient book, which is funny because they're talking about the Bible. So it sounds incredibly cynical. And I don't actually buy that perspective personally. I don't, because I don't think the rabbis were so self-conscious about the novelty of their own project. And I don't think they were quite so ideological about the ways in which the demands of the biblical text they'd inherited and their own rabbinic oral tradition or oral Torah they didn't entirely cohere, but I'm not sure the rabbis were so thoughtful about that particular problem. Nevertheless, I do see that suspicion makes a certain amount of cynical sense. Some rabbis probably did not want, did want unconstrained interpretive power to shape Judaism as they saw fit. And the Bible might have been getting in their way. I'm willing to entertain that possibility. Interesting. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, I want to think about 
obviously, the, as you've mentioned, there, there were multiple concerns that the rabbis had. Um, one that especially jumped out to me, I think, because of kind of how dramatic it seemed, were some of the traditions that talked about the biblical text as not just being sort of concerning or having some issues, but as being a danger, as being, you know, something potentially quite bad to individuals or communities. Um, what do you think we can learn from examining those traditions? Right. So we don't talk about it much, but it's really extraordinary how many different ways a Torah stroll can kill you, according to the rabbinic tradition. So it, it like might zap you with lightning that shoots out of a text that happened to a kid who read Ezekiel once. It, you might get zapped from lightning from heaven, the other direction, before you can open up a pit in which an important Torah scroll is buried. Treating a Torah scroll lightly can cause a massive plague that kills all the rabbis of a generation. But treating a Torah scroll with too much honor can get you personally burned alive, right? So basically interacting with a Torah scroll outside of synagogue readings, essentially, is a really dangerous business in rabbinic lore. So what are these stories really about? It's weird. Um, In the book, I argue that the rabbis were afraid of the Torah scroll for the same reason they were afraid of their wives and daughters. It worried them to have so much power packed into what they saw as a very vulnerable package. So I'm going to leave the rabbinic sexual politics for those who want to read the book. But when it came to the Torah scroll, many early rabbinic thinkers were pretty unnerved by the idea that real divine power could somehow be contained in a piece of animal skin that could be moved, stolen, desecrated, or just read by any human being who wanted to pick it up. It was like carrying a nuclear bomb in a suitcase, like a leather suitcase, right? Just walking down the street with it. So it felt like a very dicey preposition at the best of times. And they told stories essentially about explosions. That is, they told stories about all the different ways that this strange object, which was both vulnerable and powerful, could bring you and your entire community to a really sticky end. It might feel like a Torah scroll was nothing from a material standpoint, right? It's a small, portable object that appears to be easily kept under human control. But they were trying to say with these stories that there were also invisible and unpredictable powers there that endangered the life of the community if they were unleashed in the wrong way. So I think the rabbis conveyed this almost philosophical anxiety with just scary stories. They're pretty vivid, right? Things go splat a lot. You're not going to forget them. It's It's a good warning system. So these stories would make audiences be cautious and think twice before they took any steps that might unleash the power of the strange object on the community. It made you a little wary of this written text. You didn't take it too casually. Clearly, lightning is not something to be trifled with. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Why? So in some ways, I can sort of see kind of if we're steering our way through this, well, it's important, but there's concerns about it. Um, how do we deal with this? There's some sort of obvious kind of, okay, well, maybe like some people deal with it, but other people don't. Um, and in fact, as you detail in the book, there is there are some early rabbinic traditions that consider the biblical text to be important for rabbis to think about, but that the text should not have a role in communal practice. Um can you sort of tell us a bit about kind of how they drew those lines? Like what, what did they think they were doing with this kind of tradition? So this is actually um, something I think I learned a lot about from my students. Because in the end, I think this is a really interesting example of how historical research into lost mindsets 
can sometimes uncover insights that are pretty broadly applicable across many historical periods and regions, including our own. So in other words, this is a place where I think the rabbis were really onto something in general, actually. Um, their basic contention seemed to be that the Bible works best as a sacred tradition when practitioners can imagine the existence of a perfect guidebook without ever actually putting that inspiring vision to the test. That is, the Bible serves best as a symbol or icon of divine revelation if you don't actually read it too closely. So I see this pattern with my more religious college students quite often. They often come to my classes with a very vague notion of what the Bible actually says. They remember some inspiring quotations from like Ecclesiastes, for example, that their grandmother once told them and they were having relationship problems. Like she sat in the front porch drinking tea and quoted a line here or there and it felt really wise in context and they were moved and they were so happy that God had given them this perfect book to work with and help them shape their lives. And then they open up the book of Ecclesiastes for themselves for the first time in my class and they realize that those beautiful quotations that were so inspiring in those that under context, right, when their grandmother was repeating them to, for a specific message in a specific time or place, they look very different when you're reading this contradictory and pretty cynical biblical book straight through from start to finish. Right? Like actually looking in the book makes those lines feel a lot less magical. So actually reading the Bible sometimes, ironically, at least for these students, makes it harder for them to idolize it and experience the power of that ideal as a social force. And I don't think that's because the modern world is really divorced from the world of the Bible. I think that's just kind of how sacred text works. And I think the rabbis were onto that. As we say nowadays, sometimes it's best not to meet your heroes in person. And I think that's sort of what the rabbis were saying about the Bible. Hmm. Interesting, um, particularly given kind of the role of the text in a lot of Jewish traditions now, the kind of object is important and, you know, we'll get to this, so I, I won't give too much away. But um, I'd love for us to talk about, because we've been talking about the biblical text, right? And yet, of course, a lot of what the text is used for is reciting it, is talking out loud these things that are written down. Um, and this is something that you discuss in the book, that there's the recited formula and there's what's written in terms of what you're meant to recite written down in the biblical text. Um, and you show that in early rabbinic practices, these two things become untwinned in a way, become taken apart a little bit, um, which is a really interesting idea, right? Because surely a written down version of what you're meant to say out loud, you, you wouldn't think of those things becoming untwinned. Um, so can you tell us about kind of how this happened and the significance of it? Okay, I'm going to try my best. This one is something that people have either seen happen in practice and are like, oh yeah, I get it, or they haven't seen it. It sounds really weird. So I'm going to do my best here. But basically the rabbis read very differently than we do, like at least in our academic context or our work contexts. Um, or at least when it came to reading the Torah scroll, right? The rabbis had plenty of practical literacy. They knew how to read an account book just the way we do. All of that was the same. But when it came to conveying important cultural or religious information, the way they went about it was very different. So in most of our own everyday reading, I'm making assumptions about the audience, but I think we basically treat reading as the process of decoding written text to acquire new information, Right. So like a little kid, for example, might have to read aloud to herself to make the written letters into sounds that she then recognizes before she can get that meeting. Right. As did some ancient readers. But however, the decoding process works, both reading aloud and silent reading 
are a means of transferring information from written text into our heads. The rabbis read backwards. That is, rabbinic reading practices discourage this kind of informational reading where meaning is derived from written texts. A fair number of rabbis knew how to do this kind of reading, and we have really funny stories actually about how someone did this one time and he read a single paragraph like that, but it gave him bad dreams or spirits came to haunt him or he hurt his finger, or, you know, crazy things happen. So they know how to read like this, but they're trying to discourage it. Instead, kosher reading involved taking a meaning that you already knew and applying it to written text, right? The directionality of meaning was different. So in this reading reading practice, it worked more like a bar mitzvah kid might read Torah in synagogue for the first time. He listens to a teacher, or nowadays more likely like a lot of MP3s, right, that tell him exactly how the text is supposed to sound. And he memorizes these recordings so that then he can get up one day and recite the sing-song text standing in front of a Torah school in synagogue. Um, I recently saw my third grade kid read Torah for the first time, and it was clear he was just reciting from memory. He wasn't even looking at the right place in the text, and the teacher kept like correcting the pointer, and he was like, whatever, no one cares, right? So this practice looks a lot like, looks like a lot like our kind of reading if you don't see how the sausage is made. It's even called a reading, but it isn't the kind of informational reading we do today, because here no one is decoding the written text to find out what it says. The child is reciting a memorized text and superimposing those sounds and that meaning onto a written text in front of them. The directionality between written text and meanings reversed. Okay. So the rabbis also did this. Like even great rabbis like Abba Akiva um, would first memorize what they were going to say and then approach the written text, at least for sacred literature. So even a strong rabbinic reader only read a text if they already knew what it was going to say, which meant that a lot of literature had to be memorized in order to facilitate this practice of reading. And the result was a community in which the biblical text actually had two separate transcripts in practice, a written consonantal transcript, like we see in the Torah scroll today, just the consonants written out in Hebrew, unvocalized in a parchment scroll, and a memorized oral transcript that had all its vowels and melodic punctuation intact. So for us, it can be hard to imagine how these two scripts could be considered separate entities. After all, don't they essentially say the same thing? But for the rabbis, these two transcripts actually circulated separately in educational life and just life in general because books were not that common, right? So ultimately, they came to be thought of as two different versions of the Bible, sort of like two different editions of the biblical revelation, if you will. And that gave the rabbis an out. So when the written transcript of the Torah wasn't living up to their expectations as a sacred revelation, when they had that moment, my students have, where they opened up Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, and they were like, wow, this is not the book I was hoping for, so to speak. They could point to that other edition of the same revelation, um, in the case of the five books of Moses, the Mikra, or spoken version of scripture. And they could say, that's where the real biblical revelation resides, right? This parchment text isn't the real Bible. The real Bible is that one you've memorized and you speak every day that you hear from your grandfather. So maybe this parchment text is in the height of perfection, right? That we I hope it would be. But the real revelation, the other Bible, is perfect. So that was a really interesting solution, I think, to their problem. Yeah, that is a really interesting solution. Um, one other solution that you talk a lot about in the book, and I would love for you to take us through, is um, kind of this idea of let's think of 
the Torah not as a thing that we actually open up and that we actually read through, but as like an object, a, 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 an important object. Um, but actually, we're, we're going to think of it more like a body, like a biological thing rather than sort of a book necessarily. I mean, as you talked about at the beginning, books I, as the way we think of them are not really relevant to their conversation. Um, so can you take us through this idea of some early rabbinical traditions thinking of the Torah scroll more like a biological body rather than a sort of text to read from and, and how they thought about that in terms of its role in the community? I will absolutely try. I think one of the things we have to begin with is just to remember um, how different bodies were in the ancient world. Like nowadays, actually, many, many, many of us have what the rabbis would consider an ideal body. We're generally healthy. We're not happy. We don't open sores. We're not leaking anywhere, right? Like it's easy to forget our bodies from for hours and even like days on end because we shower. We're not hot. We're not prickly. We don't have rashes, right? So I'm just going to start there. Um, so because I hadn't actually thought of that myself at first, I was a little taken aback at first by all this rabbinic imagery in which the Torah scroll is in fact treated like a biological body. You dress the Torah, you undress it. You're supposed to guard its modesty. A Torah scroll has these bumps that are imagined in multiple texts as breasts, right? Like, oh, look, her dress is like folded over her breasts. I mean, they're really, it gets a little raunchy at points, honestly. Um, in times of trouble, a Torah scroll could be anointed with ashes along with the human rabbis and leaders of the community as if the book were just another elder in the minion and the prayer quorum. So at first I was like, what is going on here? But then if you consider a little bit how the rabbis thought about biological bodies, it becomes a bit clearer, I think. So in the rabbinic imaginary, human bodies were very special and very powerful when they were whole and perfect and unremarkable, when you could essentially forget that they were an animal, a biological being, when nothing was leaking or falling apart or in any way revealing the all too material nature of this biological thing uh, that you inhabited, the human body was the image of God on earth, right? So a, a priest's body, beautifully bathed, totally healthy, you know, standing there in clean clothes in the center of the temple was a reflection of God's image on earth. It's a source of agency, it's divine power, everything's great. But when that same body begins to show its more material side, by like leaking pus, excuse me for saying that, but there it is, or defecating, or revealing its icky crevices to the world, okay, well, suddenly it's lost its mystique and its power, right? It becomes impure. Um, it's a reminder of all the unsavory like, biological aspects of the human being, our animal side. And a leaky body is just a reminder of how far the human being really is from being the image of God in the world. So the Torah scroll, I know it seems really far afield, but I think the Torah scroll was similar in the rabbinic imagination. A perfect, whole, closed book, right, was a symbol of God's revelation in the world. This idea that ideal truth could be given to human beings to elevate the human experience into something higher. The idea of the written revelation, just like the idea of a human being in the image of God, was very powerful. But as soon as you let that Torah scroll start leaking its human linguistics, right, and animal biological components all over the floor, the magic was gone. It's just a piece of dead cow skin covered in traces of the various biological materials used to make ink. 
Um, you, people are welcome to look at the book. Ink is really gross. As it turns out, in the ancient world, it's full of all sorts of components you wouldn't want in your house today, right? And it records a very limited set of human words, words you don't necessarily understand, old-fashioned words, words that remind you that human beings are really limited, and we don't understand that much, and things change, and right? So like a human being, the Torah scroll is most romantic and symbolically powerful when its more mundane material side is kept under tight control and only its iconic symbolism is allowed to shine through. Does that analogy make sense? That was the hardest chapter. Yeah. I'm not surprised it's the hardest chapter, but I do think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, Sort of extending that idea, you talk about how in the rabbinic imaginary, quote, the most supernaturally powerful book was an unreadable one. So you've just told us a little bit about kind of the power of the closed book and that it's not icky and gross. Can you tell us about this idea of supernatural power being related to not being readable? Right. So I think this, as you Right, exactly. This relates to the biological question. So in the rabbinic imagination, you take a Kohen, a human priest, and you wash him and you clothe him and you anoint him in oil. And basically you make him as perfect and abstract a human being as possible for like an hour. And if you set him in front of the congregation, he could actually become a temporary conduit for God's blessing. So in the same way, it seems, you could take a Torah scroll, make sure it was whole and perfect, close it up tight, dress it, right? Put out its best clothing, um, and set it in front of the congregation, and it could become a conduit for divine blessing for that period. But in the same way that the priest is a powerful conduit only when he's speaking the words and actions prescribed to him in that moment, right, and keeping his own very human inclinations and quirks under wraps, right? So can you imagine if, like, a Kohen, a, a priest got up and was just chatting with people? It wouldn't feel very powerful or conduity, so to speak, right? So in the same way, a Torah scroll is most powerful when it's closed and silent, performing its role as a symbolic conduit without going off script, right, or getting bogged down in particular details, as it were. So you don't necessarily want the Torah scroll, you know, all of a sudden going off script and pronouncing an outlandish line from Hosea about, you know, a husband beating his wife, right? That's not actually, that's distracting. You want it closed up and silent so that it acts as a conduit um, of God's power without making its own particularity is too evident. So to return to the previous example, a Torah scroll is most powerful when it can be imagined to contain everything. And it isn't distracting its audience by like leaking little snippets of Ecclesiastes, for example, all over their consciousness. Mm, very much in the don't meet your heroes. Yes. Very vein so. again. Yeah, exactly. Um, so Given these concerns that they had about historical contingency, um, that they had about distracting, that they had about leaking all over in multiple ways, how and why then did the biblical text become such a significant part of Jewish life, despite the many reasons that early rabbis were so ambivalent about it? Right. That was, that was one of the driving questions of the book for me. It's like, you have this problem with the Bible. How did the Bible end up being the center of religious life? But the more I thought about it, the more I realized, I think the rabbis are pretty brilliant in this regard. By placing a closed book at the symbolic center of religious life, that empty signifier right, could stand in for anything and everything they needed it to be. So a divine message that isn't directly accessible is eternal and universal in a way that the actual Hebrew script of an ancient book just cannot be. 
So rabbinic Judaism went through a lot in the first six or seven centuries of the Common Era. Um, They saw the destruction of major institutions, huge geographical shifts, the rise and fall of empires, and yet they survived. And I think one of the reasons was that they centered communal life on what was, for all intents and purposes, a closed book. Um, So that the rabbinic system allowed late antique rabbinic leaders to radically accommodate whatever came next without being too tightly bound to a textual tradition that had been created for a very specific time and place, a time and place that were pretty quickly fading out of Jewish life at the time. So I like to just exercise with my students where I ask them to guess what the Hebrew Bible is about. And given American politics, they always have like a lot of sexual comments and guesses like that. And, you know. um, but in the end, it's mostly about sheep and like tribal warfare, right? So that's fine. It's lovely for the time, but it's a very specific time and place. It's a message for a moment, right? And the rabbis were experiencing a totally different kind of time. So by closing the book, rabbinic practitioners could imagine the Torah to be anything they wanted it to be. The most perfect book ever written that would say everything you needed to say in a chaotic and changing world. All right. That's a pretty persuasive answer to a really difficult question. Um, So thank you for helping us make sense of something that initially sounds really contradictory, but actually thinking about it like this, it makes a lot of sense. Um, This is a mildly bizarre question, I suppose I want to end with, uh, because the book has just come out. And as you mentioned at the beginning, you are waiting to hear back on uh, tenure. So very much good luck with that. Um, But is there anything you might have your eye on to work on now that people can go read the book? It's off of your desk, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to share with our audience? So this summer, I'm working on a new genre, a mini book for Cambridge University Press. It's called Elements, like a 100-page book or 80-page book. Um, And I'm calling it the Abrahamic Vernacular. It's a very, very short text, and it's written for my students. In fact, I spent most of this year dry running it on my students. I would assign it to them. They'd comment on it. It was pretty fun. But it expands on this idea of a spoken scripture to explore how that, that text beyond the text could also be co-constructed between different religious communities, right? So people have written a lot about how on paper, the Abraham of the Quran is very different from the Abraham of the Hebrew Bible or Paul's Abraham in the New Testament. And the same is true of characters like Moses or Joseph. But when it came to the vernacular spoken scripture of everyday life, Jews, Christians, and Muslim neighbors often created these little pockets of like local religious common sense in which they came like in that little town or that country or whatever it is in a small community, they came to certain shared like preconceptions about these scriptural figures or concepts or rituals or what had happened. That does not mean these practitioners agreed about everything. They would simultaneously fight tooth and nail about hot button issues, sometimes even violently. But behind those debates, there was often this backdrop of shared assumptions and mythologies that never really gets examined. Um, And these shared religious vernaculars often got folded back into the broader religious tradition of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam over the years, right? So that cumulatively over the last couple of millennia, um, the so-called Abrahamic traditions are sort of subtly knitted together by a thousand tiny threads of spoken scripture that popped up here and there over the centuries. So in a time of increasing polarization, right, there's a lot of religiously based conflict in the U.S. right now. I thought it would be good for my students, at least, to see the other side of the Abrahamic cone as well. So I'm trying to get that done this summer, and we'll see how it goes. 
Well, that sounds very interesting. Um, so best of luck with that. And hopefully you will be able to work on it this summer. Um, but of course, while you're working on it, uh, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled The Closed Book, How the Rabbis Taught the Jews Not to Read the Bible from Princeton University Press, just published in 2023. Rebecca, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. 